Next reading of Holy Scripture this morning comes from Psalm Psalm 2. If you will stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Psalm 2, the whole of the psalm. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we turn to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. <clears throat> Almighty God, we come to this announcement of your son as king. And we ask that, as that is the idea that is on our minds in this season, that you would remind us of it afresh, that you would teach us how to rejoice about what it means to be blessed by taking refuge in the Son who is King, the Son who came to be King, your only begotten Son, whom you sent and installed on Zion and amidst your new Zion, the church, for salvation, now and into eternity. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. There's an old uh, Scottish song about Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, and it starts... 
Speed, Bonnie boat, like a bird on a wing. Onward sailors cry, carry the lad who's born to be king over the sea to sky. Now, for those of you who aren't into the um, weeds of Scottish war history, uh, it's about how after a horrible uh, defeat at a place called Culloden, the young Prince Charlie had to flee from the shores of Benbecula, taking a hidden route through the Isle of Skye. And the song emphasizes that Prince Charlie had this destiny to be king. He was born to be king, and that had to be the case no matter how much defeat he experienced. Psalm 2 is also about the one born to be king. Although the emphasis goes a very different direction in this song. In contrast to how uh, that song was convinced that Charlie was born to be king despite ongoing defeat, Psalm 2 reassures us that God's son is born to be king to bring certain victory. Inasmuch as it told the coming of God's son to be king, it provides fitting reflection for us on this Christmas Eve morning as we look ahead just at the edge of the day marking Christ's coming into the world, the king's arrival. In this psalm about God's victorious king, the main question seems to be, who truly rules the world? Is it God or the nations who are in charge of history's events and creation's affairs? And Psalm 2 says that God will send forth a king as God's son who will have the nations as his own. And that point also shows us why, as we, as we started to reflect upon what the Psalter is about uh, when we talked about Psalm 1, that point shows us why Psalm 2 is part 2 of the introduction to the whole Psalter. We want to work through this book over time, uh, not all in one go, uh, to see that it is about something. It begins somewhere, it goes somewhere, it ends somewhere. The Psalms are for our instruction. And Psalm 1 showed us that the Psalter is about the law and how we delight in God's instruction through the law as those who belong to him. And this songbook teaches us about how the godly respond, or at least how the godly should respond, to the full spectrum of experiences and emotions that we encounter in the Christian life. And so the Psalter is then about the law and its application. Psalm 2 rounds that out and presents to us the king over God's people who brings righteousness and provides deliverance for all who take refuge in him. The Psalter is then about Christ as that king of whom God would have all his people sing. It is about then on the one hand the law and it is about the gospel. The Psalter's twin themes are the law and the gospel as they shape the Christian life. 
And Psalm 2 spotlights the, the king as the main figure, even the main speaker throughout the Psalms, showing us the king to whom all these divinely inspired songs point. And so our main point this morning is that God's son, God's son is the king who comes forth to claim the nations. God's son is the king who comes forth to claim the nations. And our three points today are the situation, the solution, and the strategy. So let's think first about the the situation. So a psalm's structure uh, always helps us understand the overall purpose for which God inspired it in these kind of poetic sections of Scripture. Uh, Structure has a lot to do with telling us, you know, conveying what what the real core idea is. And Psalm 2 has four parts, a problem, two responses, and then the outcome. So a problem, two responses in the middle, and then the outcome. And so verses 1 to 3 describe the the problem, but the situation that Psalm 2 addresses. In this case, the the problem is that the the nations plot, uh, they rage against the Lord and his anointed. The nations are raging, the people are plotting, the rulers are conniving together, all directed against God and his Messiah, his chosen one. And as verse 3 indicates, their plot is is about rebellion against the Lord and the Messiah, the anointed. And now, the thing is, astonishingly, if you pay attention to the way that He's presented us this problem. The psalmist isn't worried about these threats. His opening question is, why? Why do the nations rage? Why do they do these things? And the question is very obviously uh, more confused than concerned. Now, there used to be a game show called um, American Gladiators where um, amateur athletes would compete in kind of ridiculous uh, feats of strength against the professional gladiators. And the usual contestants on there uh, had some sort of athletic ability to to keep up to some degree, even if they, they got smashed by the professionals in the end. And so, you know, there was some sort of real competition in it. If we imagined that I was competing, though, uh, the audience would probably watch in horror about how badly they knew that I would get destroyed. And the psalmist looks at the nations more like that, asking the question, why are they even trying? What's the point? Shouldn't they know better? Now, throughout Israel's history, the people could have asked this question, why? 
You know, why are they doing this to us? In the concerned rather than the confused sense. Uh, on, on numerous occasions, as recorded in Scripture, the, the world loomed large against God's little nation, and certainly Israel in its own strength would be destroyed. And certainly some of the Psalms teach us how to pray when we are afraid in that kind of way. The Psalms do help us to know how to respond when we are concerned and when we do have the the worried questions. But Psalm 2 is not one of those Psalms. This Psalm reminds us that, reminds God's people that we are supposed to to lift our heads above the horizon of what appears to be the case by human standards and trust God's promises with confidence. Psalm 2 prompts us to consider our hearts as we look at the surrounding world. Uh, Truly, the world is doing some things that could be Worrying. And clearly the psalmist was surrounded by a situation that could be worrying. But he wasn't troubled. He was confused. Why the nations would even try. And so in our time, we are pulled directly into this psalm's mindset into its context. Here and now, we are reminded that that God summons us to consider troubled horizons in in, in two perspectives. One, yes, that we pray realistically for help in dire times. But second, also, that we would know That God is with us and has made promises to his people. The nations plot in vain to overcome God's people. And Psalm 2 puts that starkly in front of us. They have their plots. But in reality, the situation is that they are mere sparrows pecking at an army tank. And that brings us to our second point, the solution. The solution. The the reason that the psalmist was confused uh, by the nation's attempts to to plot against God are, the reasons are spelled out in the two responses that are contained in verses 4 to 9. So the first response is in 4 to 6, and this response is God's own. And God's reaction to the nations underscores the psalmist's confusion at this plotting. God laughs at what they think they can achieve. He holds them in derision. The tumults of the world can, from our perspective, seem overwhelming and frightening, certainly. But when considered from the heavenly Viewpoint. We remember how our God holds the hearts of kings in his hands. He directs 
the world's affairs. And when the wicked think that they have found a way to outwit him and overcome his people, God shows his sense of humor. What a joke. There's a famous scene in uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark where this, um, they're running through the streets of some, I think, well, some desert city, right? And uh, this thug catches up with Indiana Jones, and he starts swinging his sword in this, I mean, very skilled and obviously menacing way that ought to terrify most. And with a smirk, Indiana Jones just pulls out his gun and shoots him. Um, the swordsman was confident. In his power. I mean, so much so that he believed displaying it would make the hero cower. And the reality was that he had no idea what sort of power was against him. And the point is that evil often (laughs) overestimates its ability because it rests its confidence in its own strength. They forget, the wicked forget, that there are powers at work that are not obvious, but often stand behind the righteous, behind those who belong to the Lord. Psalm 2 shows that ultimately the one whom God supports will be the victor. It matters not how many schemes his opponents devise. God is the king over the universe and will bring victory to his anointed. And so finally, (laughs) turning more to why Psalm 2 is so fitting for Christmas Eve, God doesn't laugh without reason. Verses 5 to 6 Then he, God, this is part of his response to the problem, right? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I mean, this is is the real response, or why he's laughing at their uh, plans. It's because as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He knows The nation's efforts are silly because his wrath against sinners motivates him to set his king in Zion. It is the coming of this king that is in view in Psalm 2 and as we think about the season in which we, that we are celebrating now. And God's establishment of this king fits firmly into the the wider story of the Bible as, as the event of sending Christ Jesus to be our Savior. Since Genesis 3.15, we have been waiting for the seed of the woman to come and crush the serpent to break God's enemies, right? Just as this king in Psalm 2, will break the nations. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his heir 
would always reign. And further, God would have a father-son relationship. According to his covenant with David, God would have a father-son relationship with this king. And with that in view, uh, the second second response in verses 7 to 9 shows the king himself speaking. So the first response is God's laughing at the nation because the king is coming. And the second response is the king speaking as he recognizes the fulfillment of God keeping his promises. And indeed, this king knows that that he comes forth as God's son and has the nations as an inheritance. In verse 7, God the Son himself speaks prophetically that he will be sent into the world to become king and savior of the nations. God told him so much in eternity as they planned in the, in the divine council the plan of redemption. God the Father told God the Son that this would be the case. And Psalm 2 puts that on display for us, gives us insight into the divine council itself. In Psalm 2, Christ speaks ahead of his birth, about his birth, to be coronated as king of God's people. So Psalm 2 (coughs) is a prophecy about Christ in the words of the Son himself, as Hebrews 1.5 records that God said to Christ, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Following the promise to David, which Hebrews 1.6 invoked, it was, most, it was most fitting that the son of David, whom God would call his own son as the king over God's people, would be his natural son the second person of the Trinity. After all, the Hebrew word in in verse 2, behind the Lord's anointed, is just Messiah, which translates in the New, comes into the New Testament, right, as Christ. He is Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed, Jesus, God's own son to be king. And so Psalm 2 is about God himself, God the son, Jesus Christ, coming to his people as our king, not only, not only as Lord of the universe, but also as savior. In some, God laughs at the nations in their plots Because he has a king to defend his people. And that king is his own eternal son. Mighty God himself. Wonderful counselor. The prince of peace. Ready to step into history to bear his people's sin. Not just as king but also as priest. And to destroy their enemies as king. 
The solution to the problem, the solution then is Christ as the reason that God and His people should never flinch at the world's plans for wickedness. That brings us to our final point. The strategy. The strategy. Christian, have you been afraid recently? It strikes me, um, I mean, as we did a few weeks ago, whenever we go through the, the lessons and carols readings, that the prophets spoke within a context where hope was needed. They were worried about what the nations were planning, and more so, they were worried about what God's own people <laughs> We're planning. And Christ was the solution to their need for a king who would lead them in righteousness and protect them. Are you worried what the world is planning right now? Well, God's people have long had those concerns as the nations plot and rage. Scripture reminds us that despite appearances, that raging has always been in vain. God has a strategy that will put down sin and its reign in this age. It it may have appeared that the nations would win. It may still appear, appear, as if they might win. But God sits in heaven laughing because he has sent Jesus Christ as king. Psalm 2, as, the, as part 2 of the introduction to the, to the whole Psalter, um, well, is for our instruction in this way. Many, many psalms, as godly prayers, are full of lament. Many of them are full of lament. Acknowledging, I mean, so telling us that it is right to acknowledge and pray about how the world around us is raging and that that takes its toll upon us at times. Psalm 2, though, sets up the instruction the instruction for us of the whole Psalter by kind of prefacing that even though these laments are coming, it teaches us that even as we endure those tumults and even as we need to learn the godly response to those experiences, we cannot forget that God's King is on the throne. Since the Psalms are songs, that truth gives us ultimate cause to sing. We often hear about this um, so-called war on Christmas. As we, as we think about 
Psalm 2 as Christ's coming as king, we should take heart in a really significant way. Because after all, what, what, all the do- to connect all the dots that we've just laid out, the world didn't start the war around Christmas. Christ did. He came to dash God's enemies to pieces and to be the reigning, conquering king. We must remember that Christ's war on the world is more important than the world's so-called war on Christmas. Because why do they even try? We must also remember that Christ wages this war through the power of the Spirit. He dashes his enemies not by breaking their bodies, but by breaking their hearts through the preaching of the gospel. He has a people whom he came to save. Nothing will stop him. In contrast to Prince Charlie, who had to flee the battle because he was born to be king. Christ was born to be king in order to bring that battle to his enemies and crush them. In complete disregard for appearances, our king started that war on the throne of a manger. An animal's food trough. And moved to the throne of a cross. In all outward appearances, he wasn't a threat to the world. But God's opinion is otherwise. At the cross, God's king has thrown down sin, death, the devil, powers, and principalities. All Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It would be easy right now to shift full attention to talk about the cross. And certainly we always need to remember that truth that Christ died to satisfy God's justice regarding the death penalty owed to us for our sins. Indeed, in that sense, all who take refuge in this king are are blessed because our sins are forgiven by his grace. But perhaps Christmas sermons too often emphasize that the son was born just to die for us. To the neglect of how the son was born to be king. After all, Christ's saving death and his kingship are not in competition. Psalm 2 reminds us that Christ came to reign for us. In verse 9, this king will bash his opponents to pieces, and we've already thought about how. In verses 10 to 12, God warns the nations to take heed and listen to this king, lest God's wrath blaze against them. 
The nation's actions in plotting against the son are as foolish as the psalmist thought because they are stirring up divine vengeance for themselves. And yet there is refuge to be had. Perhaps this year, we ought to highlight most of all Christ's kingship. His victory as the son who was born to be king. This wonderful news um, is wonderful because, as our catechism says, Christ executes his office of king by subduing us to himself, bringing us to faith, right? Ruling and defending us, sanctifying us, and conquering all of his and our enemies. He's because he stands by those who belong to him. And so... As we look at the world outside, take heart, Christian. The king is on your side. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God has appointed his son to rule his people on earth, to conquer our enemies even conquer death itself by swallowing its sting in his resurrection. The arrival of the king is a joyous thing. It means we have no reason to fear and every reason for hope. Praise God, the king has come. And the Psalms teach us to sing that gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that we live in the age of fulfillment. When Jesus the Son has come, he has purchased redemption for all who belong to you. He has made us yours. And he has made it so that every plot against your will, against you, against your people is in vain. And we delight to know that. And we ask that you would stir up our hope, our fortitude, our certainty in these realities. That you would remind us how good it is to know the name of our King, to know that he has come, and to find refuge in him. We ask that we would celebrate well in these days what that means. We ask it for the sake of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. We have the wonderful privilege this morning. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day for celebration. Um, I guess the season in which we find ourselves. uh, And also, the Lord's goodness to us. He is reigning. And we see that he is reigning as he adds to us. And we get the privilege to uh, receive new members today. In fact, in two different manners. Uh, We're receiving some members as they transfer and become part of our covenant community. And we're receiving a new member by baptism 
as well. Uh, we're going to start with the receiving of new members by transfer. And so if the, if the Malcolm family and, and Helen would come forward to take uh, their membership vows. And as they come, I just remind everyone that even though they are taking these vows, they are the ones saying yes as we put, uh, put these questions to them. There's a reciprocal promise happening here where they become part of our church family uh, and where we promise them that we will care for them spiritually. Uh, And so in this way, we're making promises too. And we're delighted to have them to be part of us. Greg, Annie, Helen, do you believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be, I like the enthusiasm, uh, to, to be the Word of God and its doctrine of salvation, to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? Yes. Do you believe in one living and true God, in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in our flesh. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin, and that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord, And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful deeds and desires, and lead a godly life? And do you promise to participate fully, faithfully, in this church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, and to heed its discipline, even in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life? It is a wonderful privilege to welcome you into membership in this church family. We are so delighted to have you. Uh, I'm going to let you sit down, um, and then John's going to pray for you guys. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time that we could receive new members. We Pray for Helen, Greg, and Annie that you would bless them and that you would cause them to enjoy their membership here, that they would uh, join in with us to uh, work together to worship you. Lord, we uh, pray that we would also be good to them, that you would use us uh, together to bless them as well. Lord, we again thank you that we could gather together today to worship, and to receive new members. What a blessing it is. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, the elders and the Weigler family will come forward again to receive Edmund via baptism. Part of the gospel is that God takes those who are not his family and makes them his family. And we see such a profound demonstration of that this morning.
And so we give thanks uh, today uh, for the finalization of Edmund's adoption and for getting to seal his entry, not only into the Weigler family, but into our church family as well. Greg, you said you weren't going to be able to make it through this. I think I'm going to be (laughs) the one who comes up short. Um, It strikes me that as we always reflect in these moments on God's faithfulness through our families, that there are three generations standing here as part of this church. Um, A sacrament is a sensible sign that Christ instituted uh, to represent, seal, and apply himself and his benefits to believers. And baptism is the sacrament of initiation into the covenant community. In this sacrament, the washing with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost signifies and seals our engrafting into Christ and our partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. So this sign brings us into God's covenant community. In this sign, God marks us as his special possession. He seals to us the promise that By faith, we are crucified, buried, and raised with Christ so that all his benefits are conveyed to us as we trust in him. And so baptism belongs to the visible church, to those who have professed faith in Christ and to their children. God has granted this sign and seal of his promise. All within the covenant are meant to be baptized, believers with their kids, Since our first parents represented all their children in the covenant which God made with Adam, since God dealt specifically with Abraham's children by including them in the covenant of grace, so God has always dealt with his people according to families. As God promised Abraham, I will be God to you and to your children after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your children after you. And Peter reminds us that the promise is for us and for our children and all who are far off. And So this is not merely a sentimental moment, but one where God does something by tying this child to this covenant community as he keeps his promises. It is a moment where we celebrate his goodness to us in the covenant of grace. As Christ rebuked those who prevented parents from bringing their children to him, we follow his command to let the little children come unto Jesus. As we perform and witness this covenantal rite as Christ's church, we are all reminded of how God, by his sovereign grace, brought us to new life and cleansed us from our sin. And so we consider the words of institution. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
Greg and Karis. <clears throat> Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized? Do you promise to teach diligently to Edmund the principles of our holy Christian faith revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms of this Church? Do you promise to pray regularly with and for Edmund and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? Do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Edmund up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and fulfill the obligations of the covenant. Edmund, this is Christ's promise to you, that he will never leave, abandon, or forsake you for those who believe in him. Edmund Charles Gregory Weigler, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Before we let you guys sit down, I'm going to pray. Father God, how grateful we are to see the truth that you make people into your family um, demonstrated before us this morning. And so we ask that you bless this family as it grows, that you would uphold them in the nurture and admonition of the faith, that you would prosper them in leading not only Edmund, but every member of their family closer and closer unto you. We hold so dearly to your promise to be God to us and to our children after us. And we ask for Edmund, for every young member of the Weigler family, for every one of our children coming from this church, that we would see that promise kept, that they would grow up never knowing a day when they did not know Jesus Christ as Savior. Would you help us as their church to come alongside them and support them in that endeavor? And would you meet all of us as we seek to improve our baptisms as well? We ask it in the name of and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.